0: We love molecular fuels because they're extremely helpful and hydrogen is basically the way you electrify molecular fuels. We're working to build basically like amazon.com but for hydrogen. And our secret hack to get to critical mass is that we're building an extremely big, extremely useful warehouse. So we are directly developing a salt cavern storage as the only one of its kind
1: near California. Welcome to Scaling Climate Tech. I am your host, Florian, and I am thrilled to welcome you to this brand new podcast where we meet with the founders building the technologies to get us to net zero. We live in the defining decade for climate. We have until 2030 to halve our emissions. In Scaling Climate Tech, we will understand how these incredible climate technologies work and if and how they can replace fossil solutions not over the next century, but in the next 10 years. Hello everyone. Welcome back. Today in Scaling Climate Tech, we welcome Sean Drost, co-founder and CEO of Phoenix Hydrogen. Phoenix Hydrogen is a young startup created in 2021 that went through the Y Combinator and is building the first commodity marketplace connecting all the players along the hydrogen value chain, the producers, the buyers, and also the storage asset owners. The hydrogen economy has been long in the making, with many false starts. Phoenix Hydrogen is betting that with mounting pressure to decarbonize the economy and with falling hydrogen prices, this time will prove the right one for hydrogen to finally play a major role in the energy mix. In this episode, we talk about how is hydrogen already being used today and how it could be used in different sectors moving forward, how do we produce hydrogen and what is the climate impact depending on the production pathway, how Sean transitioned from the software world, the climate startup world, and what it takes to launch a startup with large industrial customers. Let's get started. Hello, Sean. Welcome to Scaling Climate Tech. Hey Florian, thanks for having me. Could you start by introducing
0: yourself? Sure thing. My name is Sean Drost and I'm the CEO of Phoenix Hydrogen. We are a pre-seed stage company working on building the first wholesale marketplace for
1: clean hydrogen. Excellent. Before we talk about Phoenix Hydrogen, can you tell me a bit more about you, about, you know, your childhood, where did you grow up and what would you do as a kid? I'm an outdoor
0: enthusiast and general, enthusiast about life. I'm, I grew up in Hawaii. I was born and raised out in the 808 state and I was raised in this like outrageously lush and beautiful place. By a couple of parents who just loved that and just loved being in nature and raising us kids in nature, hanging out at the beach all the time, going backpacking, going on like these crazy outdoor adventures. And especially for my dad, like the outdoors was really like his church. And it was like for him personally and for us as a family, it was like the way that we would connect with kind of a just this richness and beauty of the world and and to be inspired and to love life and so that was kind of like really deep-seated for me and just to this day even when I'm not at work just like the core of how I live in the world and hang out with my family and enjoy life with my friends and and so that's how I grew up as a kid and it's such a beautiful state and such a I love Hawaii so much. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area these days, and but I miss it so much. And I, I go back and visit all
1: the time, and still hang out with all my friends from high school. Actually, I don't know the state very well, but that sounds really, really charming and exciting from the your description. I mean, in California, you're lucky as well, but it's probably a very different type of outdoor.
0: Yeah, the Bay Area is absolutely gorgeous, but the uh, but you know Hawaii's got the all time best trump card for beautiful
1: weather and outdoor environments for sure, hard to beat. You study computer science and. You founded Hack Reactor, which is, my understanding, is a coding bootcamp for people to to break into software and tech. That was later bought out by Galvanize, which is an, another bootcamp player. And you acted as a senior vice president there. Help me understand your climate journey, how you, you know, move from this very tech experience and entrepreneurship experience to where you are today founding a, a climate tech startup. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, so like you said, I studied computer science. I was a software engineer for many years and, and then I'm and also interested in entrepreneurship. Hack Reactor was my first successful company, but there were a lot of quiet failures before that. So like programming was one of the threads that I brought into the experience in, in software engineering and in entrepreneurship. And also another part of my DNA is just sort of social entrepreneurship and kind of this do-gooder part of me that is that, you know, I'm interested in the game of entrepreneurship and winning and building a great business and I just find it really interesting that you can build this machine that is a company and it produces great jobs and also good. Like if the product is good, then you can like make money while giving everyone things that they want. It's like, it's magic. It's amazing. And so like I, you know, that was very much at the core of what we did at Hack Reactor, which is like help people learn to code and get their first jobs. And, you know, so I, I was a founder and I worked at that company for another like six years till we sold the company and then another 18 months. And so by the time I stepped away, I was like a lot of years into like education and really interested in all that. But also I didn't necessarily feel tied to working on anything connected to education as my next project. And uh, I had a long list of business ideas that I had built up across those years. And, and you know, I was interested. I knew uh, from the day I left Galvanize, I knew I was gonna start another company someday. And I had the whole spreadsheet and the first thing on the that spreadsheet, like one of the big things on there was, it said an all-capped climate? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Because <laughs> <laughs> I knew, like a lot of us, I had a kind of clear sense of tragedy and horror of, you know, what was unfolding and also kind of only a vague sense of what was going on. <laughs> and fortunately, I had like a few months of... I didn't even want to start a company. I just had to like, I was a new parent. I I had just left my startup of many years and I needed a break period. So I just decided to study up my climate for a few months. And within that study period, almost right away, I was like, forget everything else in the spreadsheet, because this is the business. Like this is, I was like in touch with some other friends of mine that were interested in that arc and that kind of path of exploration. And I was like, jump on and the water's fine. Because like, a, the opportunities in the energy transition and climate space are just just great, just outrageously great. It's just like where the economy is going. It's where technology is going. It's this incredibly large sea change that society is going through, comparable to any other major economic change or technology change that humans can go through. So it's like one of those big transformative changes that is just rich grounds for entrepreneurship. And also the do gooder part of me was just like, wow, like it's, it's doable. Like we can do this and, and entrepreneurs can have a part to play. And, and like there are ample places to like start pitching in and helping out. And so it was just like, I never really looked back from that first study period. And I had a long and strange journey from there to here. That was about three years ago, I guess. And I spent a few months in that study period, picked hydrogen as a market pretty early on. Just after doing a kind of survey course, I assessed that you can kind of, the study of climate is like the study of everything and how does the entire planet work and all the humans and everything we do. So like I kind of, I chose early on to pick a specialty area to some degree arbitrarily. Like I I recognize that like, I'm never going to feel like I get it at a high level. I'm
1: going to have to zoom in at some point. That's really interesting because I think that the climate, as you say, right, climate is a term that encompasses everything. It is the energy transition, it is the agricultural transition, it is the climate science itself of how the earth weather is managed. And, you know, as I say, once you start understanding at least the challenge at a high level, it is hard ignoring and returning to doing something else. That is very difficult and fully aligned with you that from a personal standpoint, having this combination of alignment of purpose and value and just from a more pragmatic standpoint, the economic opportunity that we have ahead of us, redesigning the entire economy around climate is huge from an entrepreneurship perspective. So actually curious to understand, how did you study to understand those challenges? And you say you had to pick a theme, like what was the rational to pick, you know, hydrogen versus others? Because as you say, it is very difficult to be a hydrogen expert, a regenerative agriculture expert and, you know, all these other topics that that climate encompasses.
0: What I did in my study period is, of course, just a lot of general Googling and reading whatever links people would send my way. Some really important foundational pieces for me were like, one, just reading the IPCC reports cover to cover. It's pretty doable. And that is a good, that'll set you Googling for a few months. (laughs) And so like, that was really helpful. I joined a program called Terra.do, which did not exist when I started my learning journey, but I do wholeheartedly recommend. And that was kind of like the tail end of my learning arc before I picked Hydrogen as a market. And it was in conversation with one of the founders of the Terra, Kamal Capedia, who is a dear friend and mentor. That I'd kind of So I had built up across the several months that I spent kind of studying broadly, I had built up a, a new spreadsheet of cool stuff that I thought was worth focusing on and business ideas and areas of opportunity. And hydrogen was one of several items on the list. There were a bunch of different things on there about you know, mechanisms for rainforest preservation and business models around carbon removal. And like, what I, you know, I had my own laundry list of things that I thought were cool and people that I loved collaborating with. And I chose hydrogen as a market at this time in summer of 2020 because it seemed like it was in a place where like wind and solar were in like the 2000s or batteries were 10 years ago or five years ago where it's like just at the elbow of the growth curve where it's like now things are getting interesting and this is the time this is the decade in hydrogen where like all the new seminal companies are getting founded so like and that was kind of visible if you kind of zoom in to wherever climate is at this year or next year whenever you happen to look you'll see what's already took off and and what is about to take off and and you know all this stuff is kind of visible and so i so assess that that's where hydrogen was it, and that it was about to take off which has very much come true in an outrageous way in the two years since And uh, so I chose that as a focus area and got busy and started making myself useful, started consulting and things like that and uh, started moving forward from there. And it was a further like nine months of kind of wandering through the hydrogen wilderness
1: before I met my co-founder and started Phoenix Hydrogen. You mentioned uh, IPCC. That's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They're the one that produced this comprehensive report every year, and where we are in terms of emissions and the 1.5 degree, 2 degree warming trajectory. And Teradu, I am also an alumni from Teradu. I definitely recommend. How are you? A year after you, year, actually. But they're, I think they're very similar to Hack Reactor in a sense that they are, a, you know, a pathway for climate where they provide a professional education. On climate, they have, you know, broad curriculum, but also some curriculum much more tailored to software engineers, VCs, or former oil and gas professionals, for instance. Okay, so you're in 2020, you learn about all those climate topics, you sense that hydrogen is the one you will focus on. How do you move from that general understanding of hydrogen to the specific challenge that Phoenix Hydrogen is solving? And this is probably a good plug to actually pitch what Phoenix Hydrogen is actually solving for.
0: Yeah, so I did a lot of activities when I was wandering through the hydrogen wilderness. There were I, I started a class actually with Terra.do and with one of the hydrogen figures on Twitter, who's now a good friend of mine, a Felice, who's Big Hydrogen on occasionally references Big Hydrogen on Twitter, a minor Twitter celebrity. But we so we threw this class, that was really fun and interesting, learned a lot doing that. I did a bunch of independent electrolysis project development exercises, never really Trying to get anything built, but just trying to understand the mechanics of how things got built and what it looked like and assemble. T- I t- taught myself project finance during this period, but the most influential thing I did was I acted as a, I served as a project manager on an initiative called High Deal Los Angeles. Which was sponsored by Los Angeles CWP, Mitsubishi, SoCal Gas. And a lot of interesting things happened in that period. But is the kind of like it was kind of the early days, subsequently, since then the, some of that became become visible in the form of the Angeles Link announcement. Angeles Link is a pipeline that SoCal Gas is developing to carry pure hydrogen into Los Angeles County from out of state or from somewhere where the energy rich resources are. And it was so interesting, basically Hydel LA was a hydrogen supply chain planning effort uh, for the utility scale energy users. And it was very interesting to see that like, OK, so I just read all these like high level papers about how like hydrogen is maybe getting really cheap and maybe it would make sense to use it in bulk. And then suddenly I was watching it happen like in real time, like I was in the pipeline planning process meetings where it's like, OK, we're laying out a new national grid for a new energy commodity right now. And it was just so cool. And, you know, throughout all the different activities I was doing, of course, my entrepreneur hat, I was like, what is the business? What am I working on? What is my part of the value chain here? And the observation that, I formed in the course of starting in the course of Hidal LA, I observed a couple of key missing pieces around the whole value chain of hydrogen. Like, how do people buy hydrogen and move it and use it? And there are a lot of different answers to that. And maybe this is a at some point soon. I can say a few words about what hydrogen is and why we care for any listeners who aren't already familiar. But at a high level. What I observed was missing from the value chain of hydrogen is that there is no grid for moving hydrogen around cheaply. And that's kind of how we use every major energy commodity. And that problem was kind of getting solved. Like I was in the meetings where the solutions were coming out and being planned out, but there were some kind of short supply niche pieces, and especially around storage assets. So kind of a shortage of hydrogen storage assets, which are hydrogen is very like voluminous annoying gas that wants to escape every container (laughs) and it's there's only one cheap way to store hydrogen and it's in this particular kind of storage asset called a salt cavern (laughs) and so that was one shortage that i observed but but more oppressing to me was the kind of gap in the like uh, marketplace part of the value chain so in any kind of major commodity you don't want to like buy and sell it in a really bespoke custom way there's it's everything happens much faster and smoother if there's just a marketplace where you can buy and sell it in bulk and you don't have to work for six years with the person who's buying or selling it in this very bespoke one-on-one high risk high investment way where everything has to be tailored to each other it is really annoying and that's so like the environment we're in today for hydrogen is that all project development is kind of happening where like if anyone wants to sell hydrogen has to kind of link up way before they're ever operating a production facility with some customer and then they need to size their things exactly the same and they need to put them in the one of them in the backyard of the other and they need it's really annoying and we're about to exit out of that world and move into a world where hydrogen is just like any other energy commodity where there's like You can just buy it or sell it and you can have all these rich financial tools to, to de-risk your project and to hedge things and to be able to construct your asset and, and. But that that piece of the valley chain, the hydrogen marketplace, today does not exist. And so that those are the observations that I had going through Hydeal LA. And I started my company, Phoenix Hydrogen, in a conversation with my now co-founder, Terrence. And we had this very excited first conversation where we shared like both we both had observed the same gaps, and we both observed that the first marketplace for hydrogen is going to happen basically on top of a salt carbon storage asset. And that is sort of a Fate, which is dictated by the way the system works. And I can explain
1: more about how commodity markets work, but it's a very
0: interesting, weird fact.
1: Yeah, Sean, I think this is a great place to break down those concepts because you've explained very clearly how you identify, like, you know, that today hydrogen is developed around specific projects. There are hubs that, you know, consolidate supply and demand, but these are very product specific. You have to agree on a specific production to serve a specific consumer of that hydrogen, as opposed to, you know, the oil or the natural gas market, which is much more of a commodity and fluid market. So let's try to break down a bit this hydrogen value chain, because this is really complex. I kind of like to think about it in three parts. One is the demand side of the value chain. So this is about all the large emitters today that use fossil fuel that could be substituted with clean hydrogen. So. A, Be interested to understand how hydrogen compete with this fossil fuel and specifically how does it compete to other decarbonization alternatives like electrification. The second component I think is the supply side, right? So making sure that the hydrogen we provide to the sector is actually clean hydrogen. Today we still have 99% of hydrogen, which is gray, meaning that it's derived from natural gas, significant submission associated to it. So there's there's a challenge in shifting away from this gray hydrogen. And then you touched upon the midstream portion, which is the connection between this demand and the supply. So the actual transport and the storage of hydrogen, you mentioned the cell caverns, we can delve into this. So maybe let's start with the demand to understand what is the role of hydrogen and where does it play in the energy transition? We hear a lot about electrify everything, and this definitely makes sense. You know, we have EV electric cars, we have heat pumps for the buildings. Can you help me navigate where does hydrogen play a role in the economy and specifically in in what we call the hard to abate sectors
0: yeah so today we use energy in the form of electric electrons and molecules in the forms of electricity and like molecular fuels and we love molecular fuels because they're extremely helpful and hydrogen is basically the way you electrify molecular fuels so a lot of molecular fuels like we we burn gas to, to make electricity and like that we should just directly electrify right uh, ditto for a lot of other things like burning gas to heat homes and so on so so a lot of molecular fuels don't need to be in the system we can just directly Electrify. But in a lot of contexts, the molecular fuel is really hard to replace with electricity just because we use molecular fuels as ingredients to a lot of different products, to fertilizer, to like plastics, to a lot of different things. In those contexts, replacing the fossil fuel typically means producing hydrogen from clean electricity. And so, you know, in, in cases where we use fossil fuels as an ingredient, Or in cases where we use fossil fuels, and we lean on the fact that we can store them or transport them, you know, it's really hard to power a container ship with with electricity. We really need molecules to do that kind of thing. And for like storing energy from the summer to the winter, which takes a lot of a lot of lithium, is really a terrible idea. You know, like if if you want, you know, today we use like twice as much energy in the winter months as we do in the summer months across America, for instance. And if we want to electrify all that, we have to either overbuild a lot of wind and solar, like by a lot, by like several states worth of land, or else we have to devise some kind of seasonal energy storage. And hydrogen is the cheapest kind of seasonal energy storage that we know about today. So like in a lot of contexts where we either, where we need molecular fuels. Uh, hydrogen is basically the way that you electrify molecular fuels. But, you know, those are, that's kind of the status quo world of hydrogen. And some of the new use cases include some of the transport applications that I've already mentioned, container ships, sustainable aviation fuel, as well as, of course, hydrogen cars are real in the sense that you can buy one and drive one, but they're terrible <laughs> and they're going to die. Hydrogen trucks are maybe, you know, I'm personally, I don't feel like anyone's crystal ball is real valid. So I, I don't really care what thing goes to hydrogen and what hydrogen ideas are good and which hydrogen ideas are bad i think what is kind of what is generally true about hydrogen and the value chain is that it's really broadly expected to be useful and cheap and there's a lot of disagreement about the details but there are a lot of important use cases that people are trying out and some of them are taking off and working the new use cases include like steel and forklifts and, and several other places where
1: like hydrogen and clean hydrogen are Taking off on a cost basis today, yeah. I think there's a lot of, I mean, no one has the answer, right? There's a lot of uncertainty on where hydrogen will play. And my simple frame of mind for the transport industry, at least, which is one of the main perspective, my consumer of hydrogen, is that you know electrify everything where batteries provide enough energy for that end application. But if the weight and volume constraint are too significant then that is where we need the molecular fuel to come in because they have a higher energy density than the batteries. And that's, I mean, that is a very personal perspective, but I don't believe in hydrogen cars for that specific reason because the batteries are enough to meet the needs of, you know, 500-mile cars or 300 miles electric cars. For trucking, especially long-distance trucking, for maritime shipping and for aviation, you you have those constraints of weight and volume. And this is why, you know, Liquid fuel, like oil, has been amazing today to do the job. And this is why hydrogen has probably a major role to play there. Um, I'd like to talk more about the supply side. So how do we actually produce hydrogen to supply these end applications? And maybe prefacing this with a short overview of the the main ways of producing hydrogen today, uh, which have been assigned different colors. There's gray, there's blue and green. There are other colors, but these are the main ones. And gray hydrogen is the vast majority of the hydrogen produced today for industrial application you just talked about, but that's not clean hydrogen. It is produced by steam methane reformings. It's a process that uses natural gas and releases carbon dioxide. Uh, blue hydrogen is a better way of producing hydrogen where essentially we're going through the same process as gray hydrogen, but this time we capture the CO2 that's produced during the production process and we put it underground. Um, that capture process is not 100% efficient. It's about 60% efficient, so it's still not, absolutely clean hydrogen, but it is better. And, and finally, there's green hydrogen, which we talk about a lot, and that is produced by electrolysis of water with the energy supply by renewables. So it is a cleaner type of fuel, uh, cleaner type of hydrogen. So can you help me understand what has changed uh, over the last years and what will change over the coming years so that on the supplied side, green and, and maybe blue hydrogen will replace dirtier uh, gray hydrogen?
0: Well, there are a few different pieces of that. One of them is sort of changing costs of technology and kind of under constant policy, like what happens with costs over time. And what happens with fossil fuel costs over time is that they're going up. And what happens with wind and solar energy costs over time is that they're going down. And also the cost of the machines that produce green hydrogen from wind and solar energy those machines are called electrolyzers. Those costs are dropping like a stone. <laughs> so, you know, the technological inputs to costs and the kind of like physical inputs to costs are pointing in such a direction. that hydrogen is going to get cheaper than green hydrogen is going to get cheaper than fossil derived hydrogen, green or blue, kind of in a, a foreseeable time frame. Could be m- more like five years or 10 years or 15 or 20 years, depending on what you believe and what geography you're looking at. But it's, it's coming. It's basically inevitable. If you believe in learning curves, you believe that fossil hydrogen is going to be uncompetitive on a price basis in a decade or two. And, you know, the big entities that we're talking about here, like a decade is a very short period of time for them. It's like how it's one planning cycle sort of. And so those are the kind of technological inputs to shifting price. Meanwhile, there's also the government inputs to price. Like today, the government doesn't tax anyone for putting a hell of carbon in the air. <laughs> So that's interesting, at least in America. And that is maybe not changing very much, but the government did put a $3 per kilogram subsidy under green hydrogen in the last couple of months. And it's just bonkers. If uh, For those of you who are familiar with like a natural gas, it's as though it's like a, a $30 per million BTU subsidy or for any, it's sort of a 75% direct subsidy for hydrogen versus kind of today's cost basis, roughly. But that subsidy is supposed to go up over time and the cost is supposed to go down. And such that S&P Global said that in the near future, like hydrogen, green hydrogen is going to cost less than zero. It's anyone's guess as to what's happening next.
1: Yeah, it's a great analogy that the natural gas one, because it's hard to put in context like $3 per kilo, but like the, the gallon of oil in the U.S., depending on the state, is like, some you know, $4-ish per gallon. This is the same as if the U.S. had said, you know, we we're putting a subsidy of $3 per gallon and now oil is $1. This is literally what's happening in hydrogen. It's around, you know, it depends on the state, but it's around $4-ish per kilo of hydrogen for green hydrogen. This $3 per kilo subsidy brings it down to one, right? So this is, a, this is the biggest policy in the world to drive the supply of hydrogen that came out uh, a few months ago.
0: Yeah. And it topped the bipartisan infrastructure law was previously the biggest policy support for green hydrogen. It was about a 20x scale up in terms of direct funding for clean hydrogen technologies and infrastructure and deployment. So, so, you know, we went from 2020 when I got started and all this stuff. It was basically crickets on a relative basis. And then the bipartisan infrastructure law. Announced a roughly 20x scale up in terms of U.S. total investment in clean hydrogen, and then the Inflation Reduction Act just went even bigger. And so it's like the U.S. is really going hard on hydrogen right now. And so, but I want to touch briefly on one and all input to costs when we're talking about the energy transition. it's really important to understand that like costs are. Kind of fake. They're like a lot of costs are sunk, right? Like when we're talking about displacing gray hydrogen at refineries, we're talking about replacing machines that cost a billion dollars plus and are in use every day and are very complicated. And some the person who owns them, like they don't necessarily want to replace them because then it ha- maybe you have to write down the go the whole value of that. Is is the value of that old production machinery? Is the value of that thing a billion dollars or is it zero? Because I'll tell you what the owner of that machine wants. Owner of that machine does not want the value of it to be zero. So that's kind of another factor. When we talk about costs, what exactly are we talking about here? Because when we say that like green hydrogen might be cheaper than gray hydrogen, you know, it's not a sort of like analyst's take, which will turn the game. It's going to be a case by case circumstance. It's going to be dependent on supply chains. It's going to be dependent on some costs. It's going to be dependent on a lot of different topics.
1: I think this is super interesting john because when we talk about three dollar for a we're talking about the production cost of hydrogen it's important that it is a cheap commodity what you're referring to is that from the end user you want the commodity to be cheap but for some applications you have to retrofit or you have to change your equipment and that has to be embedded in the cost so if you have a one billion machine that you need to upgrade to a new one billion machine then that needs to be added in the cost of the commodity and the same thing applies to shipping irrigation, right? If you need to buy a new plane or buy a new ship to switch from oil to hydrogen, that needs to be baked in into my, my cost. One side we often forget in hydrogen when we talk about supply and demand is the midstream. So I'd love to be able to, to deep dive on this transport and storage piece. It is a new energy commodity. And there is very little infrastructure that is, let's say, compatible or dedicated to hydrogen today. So there is a significant... Asset build to make happen in the coming years. Can you help me break down like those main assets and main steps in that midstream? And you know, what can be leveraged today from the existing assets and what is, you know, brand new for hydrogen?
0: Yeah, great question. So today, the world of hydrogen looks sort of like the world of natural gas might have in, I want to say, like 1950 or something like that. There's like, today we have 1,600 miles of hydrogen pipelines and a few storage assets, geological storage assets in the United States, and almost all of that is in the Gulf Coast. And so like, you know, when we just started using natural gas, we had like a couple of little pipelines, and then we'd ha- have these, s- some little weird bespoke use cases for it where like, you know, maybe some people would truck it around or like they had all these different ideas. But meanwhile, at that time and today, 99% of the use was happening by pipelines. And that's really the only cheap way to use gaseous fuels is move them around by pipeline and you store them in giant geological storage assets. And that's true today. That's the status quo of hydrogen today. And we're going from like 1950s in natural gas to like 80s in natural gas over the course of this decade. So we're kind of by the end of this decade, we're going to see a I think, mostly operational national pipeline grid for hydrogen. <laughs> I think that's a little more bullish of a statement than others would, would confirm, but I'll go to bat for that. I think that's pretty accurate. I think we're going to see at least tripling of that number from 1600 miles by the end of the decade in terms of what goes operational. And, you know, today there are, I want to say three or four solid carbon storage assets in the U.S. I think it's three. There are across the last two years, there are of a further like six or so storage assets in the U.S. So like that's a really rapid pickup in terms of like what's being developed and the relevance of a storage. So everyone kind of understands the idea of a pipeline. It's like a big tube of energy, a giant river of energy, like one natural gas pipeline or one hydrogen pipeline has as much energy flowing through it as like, you know, several of those giant 200 foot tall transmission towers, right? Those things carry almost nothing compared to one little 40 inch wide pipeline or whatever. And so, and this Storage: Any kind of gas just pipeline system has to be tied to a storage asset, more or less, in order to operate. It ha- is just it's, that's the buffer that keeps the gas flowing. And these storage assets are gigantic holes in the ground. For natural gas, we use mostly pore space. We use like depleted aquifers or things like that, just like big natural kind of honeycomb holes in the ground. Like we'll pump gas down there and pump it out. And um, we also use salt caverns for natural gas. And for hydrogen, it's the only thing we can use. And salt caverns are giant man-made holes in the ground. You make them in a layer of rock salt and the thing that we like about rock salt is that you can mine it just by kind of putting a sprinkler head down a <laughs> uh, down a down a well bore and if you run a sprinkler in a well bore for like uh, two years then you have a thousand foot tall hole in the ground that is the cheapest kind of airtight vessel that you can make of that size it's about the size of like the Empire State Building or so um, so that's kind of like what the midstream looks like.
1: Yeah. The first time I heard about natural gas being stored in pore space, I was a bit surprised. I was Really, that is how we store natural gas. We just put it underground in a geologic storage. But this is a very mature technology. This is how we actually run the gas grid. How advanced is the salt cavern storage of hydrogen technology? It's extremely high technology readiness level to probably TRL9. Like
0: we have deployed thousands of miles of hydrogen pipeline and many salt cavern storage assets. We are extremely well characterized. We know how to store hydrogen in salt. We know we, we have extremely robust operational, like decades of monitoring on leak rates and cavern stability and like every kind of thing that you would want to study about how it interacts with this or that type of compound in the salt and like how it interacts with like microbes in the brine at the bottom and like all these like minute details like we have tons and tons and tons of detail on that and like the engineering partners on phoenix's project like they do this day in and day out they have an active multi-billion dollar practice of managing hydrogen cell caverns it's like very normal it's extremely common in low tech at this point, I call it low tech because the tech is so old.
1: Okay, so we're fairly mature on the storage side, or not fairly, we're really mature on the storage side. What about the transportation side? So pipeline, we obviously know how to do, you know, natural gas pipeline. There are tweaks to a hydrogen pipeline. Is there any technological challenges on, on that side as well?
0: Yes and no. So it's like there are extremely low tech, well understood solutions for putting hydrogen pipelines in the ground. Like it's again, we have sixteen hundred miles of that pipeline running today it's pretty well understood and a lot of people have maybe heard about or read about steel embrittlement that's a real problem if you're trying to retrofit natural gas pipelines but if you're building a new hydrogen pipeline you could just use the right grade of steel and it's not going to have the same kind of embrittlement problems it's just a thing you engineer around and we know how to engineer around it and and I, i don't mean to be dismissive or kind of call out that there are there's there there are like a lot of really great technological opportunities here for like retrofitting natural gas pipelines or for like a million different kinds of gas sensing for like leaks or what have you the way that we operate pipeline grids today is just very very low tech very little regard for any kind of leakage that's how our energy infrastructure is today and reproducing that in a way that is better for the planet is very doable today and improving on it tenfold is also doable and that's where the technological innovation comes in so the answer to like what's the role of new tech in the midstream is mixed and the last thing i want to say here is that a lot of the when we talk about like hydrogen as an energy transition tool a lot of the way that people talk about moving around hydrogen is what i consider actually pretty niche it's like you move around highly compressed tube trucks of hydrogen or you move around liquid hydrogen at like 17 Kelvin or whatever it is, it's very messy to try and move hydrogen around by truck or by like these weird materials that people are trying to like toluene, like store hydrogen in a toluene molecule. Today and in the future, that's, that's, that is niche and it will be niche on a relative scale. You know, like it may be very powerful and important in its own domain, and there's a lot more technological innovation to do in those worlds. But when we're talking about like replacing fossil fuels and fertilizer or steel or plastics, we're talking about moving it around by pipeline
1: and it is a very deeply well understood thing. One very exciting technology that has emerged as well on the distribution side of hydrogen is blending and de-blending. So the notion being that we can either build a dedicated system to distribute hydrogen to the different customers, or we can leverage the existing natural gas pipeline. But as you mentioned, natural gas pipeline can't have 100% hydrogen. They can usually accept 5%, 10%, 15%, depending on their, their age. And the idea of a blending and de-blending is that we would be blend hydrogen in those natural gas pipeline and have some machine at the endpoint of the consumer to de-blend the hydrogen. How advanced and, and what is the outlook for this kind of technology? You
0: know, I can't claim to be an expert on uh, deep blending and, and it is one of those things that people are really tr- working on and trying to innovate on. I'll say, like, just from a basic physical point of view, like, deep blending has certain kinds of expenses associated. It's like you're trying to unmix a beverage of some kind you're trying to unmix a gas right so there's going to be it's going to be kind of painful to unmix it and i am generally kind of bearish on blending and on de-blending it you know for the kinds of high volume applications that i've mentioned that are like very large point source consumers or producers of hydrogen that kind of system really interferes with the economics in a material way unless it gets very cheap in a way that i'm not too familiar with like i haven't seen a lot of evidence of that happening and so you know if you're trying to blend hydrogen into a natural gas pipeline and then move it around to say like a a fertilizer uh, production facility and then de-blend it at the fertilizer production facility and then use that clean hydrogen. Like that can really materially change around the cost basis of hydrogen. Meanwhile, where we site ammonia facilities today is basically where the natural gas is cheap. And and frankly, like as we reorganize around where energy is cheap now and and where and as that geography changes. I think that we're just going to move the factories to where the pipelines are, like like we did last time, you know? We already did this quite recently when the natural gas boom took off. We moved all the factories. We're going to do it again. <laughs> when hydrogen gets cheap enough at like X hub or Y hub or Z hub, then the factories will appear there. <laughs> and like, you're not going to move hydrogen around by a pipeline and de-blend it necessarily. You know, I I, I don't, nobody's perfect.
1: Crystal ball is perfect, but like that's kind of my two cents. Let's come back to Phoenix Hydrogen. I think that was a really good overview of the value chain of Hydrogen, which is a very complex value chain. And Phoenix Hydrogen is building the commodity marketplace for Hydrogen. So now we understand how it connects the producers of Hydrogen, whether they're blue, green, or pink, the midstream operator, transport, storage assets, and the end users, so those large emitters in transport, in heavy industry, maybe in power generation. How do you test consumer need for such a product? And I'm asking this because we're not talking of a a consumer product or a small business product here. Your customers and participants in the platform are large industrial companies or energy companies that are actually producing the hydrogen. So how do you connect with them and how do you test appetite for such a, a platform? That's
0: a question at the heart of of our company for sure. <laughs> so, how do we assess customer demand for a marketplace? There's kind of an interesting challenge at hand for a marketplace. One analogy I find myself coming to frequently is thinking about our product as a dating app. And if you go to if you build the perfect dating app and you go and show it to some somebody, the first person you show it to, you're going to be like, "Do you need a dating app?" And they'd be like. I hate dating apps. That's for weirdos, right? Or rather, that this was the case when I was working on dating apps back in like 2012 or 2010 or something like that. I used to work at OkCupid. And then even if you can convince them to open up your dating app, they'll be like, this thing sucks. There's nobody on it. And it's just an intrinsically challenging thing to user test because intrinsic to the product is the existence of critical mass. The product is definitely useless without critical mass. So then how do you test for demand? To be frank with you, it is my assessment, and I think 100% vanilla fact, that if hydrogen happens, if it does become a valuable energy vector, energy commodity, there will be a commodity marketplace for hydrogen that is intrinsic to the physics of the world. There's no thing that we produce in bulk and use in bulk that doesn't have a commodity marketplace. But what is the basis for the belief that that is happening now? That that critical mass can be built now and not five or 10 years from now. It is 100%. That is the core bet of our startup. That is the big leap of faith that we are taking as a startup. Our bet is that that is that this is the decade where a commodity marketplace happens for hydrogen and that it is possible. Actually, I think we are working to bring it forward in time by a couple of years. And we believe that to be possible with. Strategy that we're operating against. I'll say that the strategy that we're using to bring that commodity marketplace is definitely a useful thing. So we're working to build basically like Amazon.com, but for hydrogen. And our secret hack to get to critical mass is that we're building an extremely big, extremely useful warehouse. So we are directly developing a salt cavern storage as the only one of its kind near California. And California, of course, being the largest near-term market for hydrogen. So, we are in point of fact developing a uh, 1500 foot tall hole in the ground in northwestern Arizona. And in point of fact, that is a very useful thing for a lot of different people. We are working with every major utility. I sit on the board of the Southwestern Clean Hydrogen Innovation Network, the dominant regional hydrogen hub in our area, and where we applied for a billion dollars in grant funding with that consortium on Monday. <laughs> we are working with, on Charting out the midstream grid for hydrogen and building that national network. And, you know, our, our storage asset is a key part of that. And in point of fact, every commodity market which exists sits on top of a giant warehouse at a critical trade crossroads. So that is the basic physics of how commodity markets work. And our company is a bet that <laughs> uh, the storage asset development is kind of a normal bet, but not like a taking a flying leap at face bet. It's just a bet that we can get some permits. And the commodity marketplace is a bet that that storage asset is in a big enough warehouse and sitting at an important enough trade point in the trade crossroads. Normally, the way that we build commodity marketplaces is like over the course of many decades, people build like a little network of trade through this like extremely annoying slog of manual trade with no marketplace and very bad infrastructure for trade. And then kind of people wear use pathways into the, the world. And then, and then so like the warehouses and trade crossroads become obvious by the time someone starts the commodity marketplace. And the big bet of our company is that you can bring that forward in time by picking a good
1: spot and doing it. Maybe we should have started the episode by pitching Phoenix Hydrogen as Amazon for hydrogen. But understanding your model very precisely, you're developing yourself the storage assets? That's correct. Okay, because it could be a coordination marketplace, but here you're actually owning the storage asset, just like Amazon is owning its own warehouses. But you you might not be owning the commodity itself. You're only owning the walls. What is the model?
0: Yeah. So our products, the thing that we're building, the thing that we believe has really the business model we're trying to scale to the moon is the amazon.com part of the business. <laughs> so we built a digital product that people can use to buy and sell hydrogen in bulk, and we'll be, we'll be conducting the first auction on that platform in Q1 of next year at our first trading point, which is at our storage asset. This platform can go and scale to other trading points, and we aren't going to go and develop a million storage assets all around the world. We're going to contract with people who own those things. There is a necessary tie between the website and the fulfillment infrastructure, but you know we're not a warehouse company, first and foremost.
1: And you've raised two million dollars. How do you build a giant salt cavern as a startup?
0: Yeah, well, we haven't previously announced this, but we also have a, a term sheet for seventy million dollars of infrastructure funding in the in the storage asset. Okay, so we're you know it, it's a, a life of a storage developer is a is a, a whole different thing. And I could have a, ver- a very fun episode that I'd I'd really want my co-founder, Terrence on around just the mechanics of developing a storage asset. It's very cool stuff, and like. Very, very connected to the, like the earth and to like physical, like large scale infrastructure. And I just love that tie. We, we went out on a site visit three weeks ago and brought the whole team and just like, you know, just the, the scale of the projects that are being contemplated that we're, we're directly working on and our partners are working on is just like outrageously cool but yeah a typical life for anyone who doesn't know the life cycle of a of an infrastructure project an infrastructure project happens very slowly for a period of a few years and it's mainly about assembling an important binder full of spreadsheets and permits and there's and, and like nothing happens in the ground during that time basically like you don't put in you don't build anything you don't do anything you just kind of like draw up a lot of engineering plans and documents and and financial models such that you know the basic goal of this first phase the basic goal goal of, of, in producing this binder is to have a bulletproof system of documents that says, if you put $70 billion into this binder and then use that money to go out and construct this physical thing, it will turn into $11 billion plus $1. And that's we're in that phase of the storage asset development right now. And our binder is dope. Yeah, so that's kind of the the basic lesson. When We raised $2 million, as you mentioned, we used that about 50-50. We put about half of it into the storage asset subsidiary,
1: which is so far wholly owned. And the rest we used. To write software. <laughs> what is the biggest challenge you face when building this binder? So basically, when, when you have such a, a large infrastructure project, what is the most difficult? Is it the design? Is it the permitting? Getting that funding? What was the biggest challenge you had? Oh,
0: wow. It's I would say the sheer number of independent details and tasks and papers that must be arranged in extremely excruciating detail. It's ridiculous. Ridiculous! Like this binder must be truly bulletproof. Later, like down the road, probably like a hundred plus serious professionals will look at this binder like very in my, very minute detail, line by line. And anyone that is just off can just get the whole thing nixed. Like if there is announced to us, like some kind of minor history of like somebody made some bricks on this site seventy years ago. That could be the end of our whole binder, <laughs> right? And there are a lot of other details like that. There are some high level risks that are present for every kind of infrastructure asset. It'll be different for storage project development. You know, the big pieces that we need are like, we need water and we need an anchor customer and we need rich, specific detail about the body of salt that's underground. And there's some things that I want to say about all that, but we are, we're doing good. We're doing good on the, on the big pieces, but I wouldn't even necessarily say the big pieces are the hard part, because if the big pieces were the hard part, I wouldn't have this, this sense of awe and horror when you ask me what is hard about it. The the hard part is the sheer number of tasks, (laughs) the sheer number of details to manage. It's really challenging. I can't emphasize enough how just outrageously cool this infrastructure project is that we're working on with our partners. Like it is going like the basic building blocks of this thing are like, one, the largest solar project in America, (laughs) which is not ours, it's our partners, but it's co-located and it's awesome. And two, it is the largest battery in America, effectively. If you think about hydrogen storage as being about storing energy and energy made from wind and solar. It is going to store enough energy to power California for like a week. (laughs) It is going to be more battery than every other battery in America combined. It's like, it's a big battery. It's like 30 million kilograms of hydrogen. It is like a very big battery. (laughs) And we are actually capable of scaling up from the three cavern design that we are looking at to something like 200 caverns like this site is a very special place geologically and is capable of being kind of the national hydrogen reserve strategic reserve it is in like all of this combined is like a river of wind and solar energy flowing from the resource rich interior of america to the coast where we need the energy it is just out just i can't even tell you how cool it is i'm just so in love with the infrastructure side of our house it's very cool
1: Sounds good. If you could talk to Sean in 2018 or 2020 when you started the climate journey, what would you tell yourself to do differently?
0: It's so funny. I'm in in a very strange place in the arc of a startup, right? I'm like, like I said, I'm about three years into this journey, and we're still pre customer, right? I don't know if that's come through in this interview or not, but like, we're still pre customer. <laughs> like nobody's paid us a dime yet for anything that we're working on, and. The first check that—that's for a better reason than I think most startups. Like the first check someone cuts us is probably going to be like I don't know n- nine figures, <laughs> but but the it's been a very messy road. And I don't know if I have a lot of wisdom to contribute to Sean of that era. I mean, I think I have some little smart, small things to say. I I, I might discourage myself from some of the trees I was barking up and encourage myself in a different direction. But at a high level, like this startup is a, we're really working on a moonshot and we don't know if we won yet or not. Like, Every morning, I wake up. Depending on what's going on that day, I wake up feeling like a like this is a trillion dollar company that can't lose, or feeling like that's or it, it, fucked it's over. Uh, but you know, I think that the lens that I uh, had at the kind of walking into the climate period, climate study period, and the lens I had coming into like my period of study around the hydrogen value chain, I think we're fairly well informed, and I wouldn't. Shove myself up into a very different path in in another direction. I mean, for anyone listening to this podcast, I think who might be in the same position that I was in in the past, I would really just encourage you to jump on in the waters fine. Like, this is the distance from where you're standing today to being at the forefront in some kind of really important new area of like ecological renewal or energy transition or some like very important arena that we need to be winning at and we're currently losing at. Like, you. Could get there in in a very short period. If I could go back in time and talk to myself, I think I'd probably say the same thing.
1: What I find so exciting about Phoenix Hydrogen, as you say, is that it is a moonshot, right? So if you believe that the hydrogen economy will grow massively, and if you believe that like any energy commodity will have a marketplace, then maybe that is not over the next six months, but the growth trajectory of the company could be, as you say, you know, massive as the main trading platform or commodity platform there. Yeah. Could you share one useful resource you've come across through that learning journey or or, or the more recent time on, on Hydrogen for listeners to delve more into the topic?
0: oh yeah for anyone who isn't already like getting university class education for free off of energy twitter like go there right now like just go search for hashtag energy twitter and just follow the first dozen people that you find like oh my god phenomenal i love love twitter for education i've already mentioned ipcc and tara do resources there are great slack channels for anything that you find interesting i also found some of those helpful the ones that i kind of
1: popped into in my journey include my climate journey. Sean, it's been a it's been a real pleasure talking together today. It's been an inspiration, honestly, to hear from you. There's so much to be done to reduce the emission of the hard-to-abate sectors, and I think hydrogen has a pivotal role to play here. And I wish you the best with the infrastructure project you have on the Salt cavern and uh, from the coming years with hydrogen. Thanks so much, Florian. It. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, and thanks for having me on. Pleasure. Congratulations, you finished this episode. Thank you so much for listening until the end. And if you liked it, please don't forget subscribe and leave a five-star review. This is really helpful to be more visible in the rankings and to be able to keep inviting the best of climate tech entrepreneurs in this show. Thank you so much. And I'll catch you on our next episode very soon.